Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is Made in New York, the people, projects, and policies that represent the cutting edge in New York's movement to decarbonize buildings. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2022 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. So we're joined on this episode of Radio BX by Kate uh, Simonon. Uh, Kate is a professor and chair of the Department of Architecture at the University of Washington. She's also the founder and executive director of the Carbon Leadership Forum. Uh, Kate has a really extensive background in high performance design, uh, life cycle assessment, and most particularly, I guess, uh, embodied carbon. Um, but not just research uh, around that, but really focusing also on policy action around embodied carbon, um, which is which is quite quite unique. Um, and uh, and Kate has a has a very uh, relatively unique background um, uh, with uh, being educated both as a structural engineer and as an architect. Um, and uh, and so we welcome Kate very much uh, to Radio Bix. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Great. You know, Kate, I mentioned, you know, you have you have a, a bachelor in architecture engineering, then you have two masters in structural and uh, and architecture. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if when you began um, your educational path, uh, if you knew that sustainability uh, was going to be a focus and and sort of how you ended up where you are now having such a such a prominent position in, in the sustainability field. Okay, this is a little embarrassing, but if you go back 30 years when I was starting um, studying architecture, I was not focused on sustainability. It was the 80s and I was excited about, um, you know, form and and structural performance and things like that. Uh, And it's actually that, um, that arc for me you know, 30 years from that to where I, you know, was excited about buildings as buildings as objects and places and light and all of that to where I am now, still excited about buildings, but what I would call a climate activist, you know, that's 30 years it took me to get there. And 30 years from now is 2050 when um, arguably the whole world is going to be there, right? We're all, we're all working together and we've solved the climate crisis. So it's an interesting, interesting to me to think about time that way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a great way of framing it. Um, that you're in the middle of something and not at, at the at the end um, in any way. Um, and how did how did embodied carbon become this thing that you seem to have focused on so principally um, within your work? Well, there's a there's a couple of things. Um, you know, early on, I had a um, a colleague um, Scott Shell at EHDD Architects who was excited about low carbon concrete. Uh, and he was talking about the opportunities of that. That was maybe 20 years ago. And I worked on a project in which um, I, me, I was working as an architect and the structural engineer and I, we kind of stayed late and figured out how to spec out low carbon concrete. And we did a you know little scratch calculations and it appeared that the carbon savings from making that switch on the foundations of this project uh, was greater than my emissions from all of my commuting, you know, 
ever. And I was like, whoa, like that was a really exciting moment to recognize that the decisions I made as a professional had a, you know, orders of magnitude larger impact than the decisions I make as an individual. So that that was sort of a, a kernel of that thought. Uh, and then a, a little bit later, I was working with a team. We were um, proposing uh, prefabricated zero net energy homes. So, you know, customizable, integrated solar, super energy efficient. However, we were going to import a glass and aluminum curtain wall systems from Asia that we could snap together kit of parts. And it started me down the question again, well, could you really make a green home in which you shipped energy intensive materials halfway around the world? And that, that's where I started to answer, what is the impact of making things and shipping them around? And that's what led me to life cycle assessment and the understanding of embodied carbon or the, the, those emissions from making and stuff and moving it around and all of that. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's very, it's one of those transparency issues, right? That you just know that if people knew what the different impacts of these various selections, just choosing finishes and, uh, you know, floorings, for instance, if you knew at, at some level what those impacts were, you would make different choices. But for so long, all of that was completely uh, opaque to us, <laughs> even if we even if we wanted to know, there wasn't an easy way to find out in a lot of cases. Yeah, we were having to make proxies like uh, locally sourced. So that would be better because you'd have less transportation impact source like that. Mm-hmm. Um. How does one deliver a zero embodied carbon building? And is that at this point like mostly aspirational or do those do those buildings exist today? So a zero embodied carbon building would be a building in which there were no greenhouse gas emissions made in the uh, manufacture of the materials and the construction of the site. So if I were to go into the woods with a saw, and a handsaw, and I used my handsaw to cut the logs and I rolled them with myself and I built the house myself in the woods. Um, and I didn't burn in diesel truck trucks or use a generator or, um, or I powered all of my, maybe I could use an electric chainsaw um, that was generated by um, zero carbon electricity. So, uh, you know, practically speaking, um, you know, um, a material made with uh, waste straw, um, so uh, uh, from right next door to where you are, so on a farm building that, you could conceivably have a, a, a building that was built with no emissions that took place. Uh, um, practically speaking, most of our buildings um, are transported at least a little bit on diesel trucks and are used factories that have natural gas or coal or even you know electricity um, um, powering them. So, uh, you know, where we are today is most we're uh, driving towards uh, low, lower embodied carbon buildings. Um, we can look at buildings that store carbon in them. So, um, you know, I, as I mentioned, the straw, the straw removed while it was growing was fo- through photosynthesis absorbed um, carbon. And, and so if we, we can keep if we can keep that straw not decomposing for a long time, then we are also can store carbon. So there's a sort of a balance that goes in place with the emissions that take place in what we make something and how do you reduce those? And then how there are some then opportunities to store carbon in them. But when you get into stored carbon, also like in wood, uh, there's a whole bunch of um, additionalities that take place. What happened in the forest? What happened in the farm? What would have happened if you didn't cut the tree or the piece? 
So when we're looking at um, embodied carbon assessments, we're really wanting to take that stored carbon, which can be considered negative because some things were removed and, and think about it as something separate than the emissions that took place in making the building. So it's a little, it, those, sometimes people um, add those together and, and can get to a net zero, um, but those emissions take place at different times um, in different conditions. And so it's um, more technically robust to hold them separately. Yeah. In uh, sort of focusing on these issues in 2010, um, you founded the Carbon Leadership Forum. And since then, it's grown into a very large global um, community. I wonder if you could tell your audience, uh, our audience, a little bit about what CLF does and what the focus is there. Well, I'll start by the founding. You know, the first meeting of the Carbon Leadership Forum was initiated by a group of practitioners who wanted to understand and help drive towards more standardized accounting of the impact of building materials. So I, you know, I had the fortune of partnering with that group to um, to, to conceive of this, this industry and academic collaboration. So we do have academic uh, curiosity of understanding what's really happening, doing some an analysis to, to, to get better quality data and methods, but that's all couched within the understanding of how do we inform practice to drive meaningful change today. So, uh, you know, I came from over 15 years of practice. My academic work really is trying to answer questions that came from practice. And so, you know, the Carbon Leadership Forum has grown um, to have um, um, the work that we do at the university um, that is answering questions um, around data and methods and developing policy, uh, model policies and evaluating policies about the use of embodied carbon. But we also have our network. And so that network is about connecting connecting to professionals. We have an online um, community platform where people ask questions and share information, but we also have in-person regional hubs. So those grew out of a local group, say in Vancouver or Seattle, where there were multiple practitioners trying to act on embodied carbon, they you know get together at lunchtime meetings or share information and share best practices. Those are now um, uh, we've created a, um, a a structure to help support um, regional hubs that are now you know recently Philly just opened up a hub, um, uh, but you know we've got from Boston to Austin and. Uh, just this summer, one opened in um, Bengaluru or Bangalore. So um, it's really exciting to see um, how um, that, that we're providing a, a platform to enable people to share best practices and help inform uh, others towards greater impact. That's great. Um, and one of the kind of primary initiatives of CLF has been the creation of the embodied carbon in construction calculator, uh, normally called EC3. Um, can you talk a little bit about this as a, as a resource, sort of, you know, what it does and, and how, how practitioners work, um, work with this tool? Okay, great. So the EC3 tool is fundamentally a database of um, material carbon footprints. So manufacturers can use life cycle assessment as a method to evaluate the emissions that take place in making their products. And they can publicly declare those emissions, sort of like a nutrition label or a miles per gallon on a car um, that's associated with a product. Um, Prior to the EC3 tool, each of these um, environmental product declarations or EPDs existed in a three to 25 page PDF 
that was published on individual manufacturers' websites um, and not all in necessarily the same way. So if you wanted to know the carbon footprint of a product, you had to search out its individual EPD, open it up and look through 17 pages and try and find the number or two numbers that you were looking for. The EC3 tool came out of the need of uh, really industry wanting to use the, this data more effectively to inform their decisions. So uh, um, uh, it was initially um, um, conceived of by um, Stacy Smedley at Skanska and uh, software developer, Phil Northcott. They came out like, we can do this better. Like we can take the data out of the PDFs and turn it into a, um, into a database. And they came to the Carbon Leadership Forum because we, could, we were able to incubate this initiative. So we helped refine the data methodology for aligning the data. We helped convene over initially over 50 um, uh, industry sponsors to help um, pull together the funding to be able to uh, create an open access database. So now the EC3 tool um, has launched as being supported by an independent nonprofit building transparency with the mission to um, help to um, bring this data available um, to as many people as possible. Uh, so that it's grown to now 30,000, I think it's more than 30,000 different materials in the tool, more than 3,000 people, and it's more than 30 countries. Who are the main users of this tool besides the manufacturers? Is it is it people, you know, project architect that wants to assess their a, a current project? The EC3 tool is primarily suited to compare materials. Uh, so material, like, uh, and two materials that are similar, like a steel from one manufacturer and a steel from another manufacturer. So it's, it's really useful. It's um, mostly useful in the specification and procurement stage of a project where you say, I know, I know I'm going to buy steel. I know I'm going to buy carpet. I know I'm going to buy sheetrock. I want to know what are the relative carbon footprints of the different suppliers and might I incentivize or prioritize a lower carbon option uh, that meets the same performance criteria that I want. So a user can be um, a general contractor who is looking to um, satisfy an owner's request to um, have a total carbon footprint reduction on a project. Um, and, uh, and it can be architects um, looking to project what is possible based on, on what the different options are. It can be an owner who says that we want to set a, a carbon footprint cap on our project and we will give bid incentives, say, if you, if you reduce below a certain amount. It's also being used by policymakers to understand what is the range of impacts in different materials and whether or not uh, it is appropriate to incentivize or require low carbon options. And what's the next uh, phase for that tool? Like where, where do you see it? You know, where, where does it uh, currently have challenges? Cause this is such a complicated set of, of issues. Um, and, and how do you see it kind of improving in the, in the next few years? I think a couple of things. One is um, it uh, recently building transparency took over um, shepherding of a whole building lifecycle assessment tool tally. Uh, that was um, donated uh, from the founding, founding Kieran Timberlake architects who had founded the, and developed that project, um, um, gave it to the nonprofit Building Transparency to be able to um, keep that going. Um, so that, that means taking lifecycle assessment data and integrating it into whole building decision, design decision making. So those would be the kind of things where you compare two different buildings together. 
Um, so that's sort of like the moving up in scale, but they're all also doing work um, to support um, more consistent and open access um, upstream data, like what's the data for transporting via a truck and what's the data for um, nylon production and um, um, all of the, the, that data that goes into the lifecycle assessment of a product, um, that too um, um, needs to be more, um, more refined, more open, more transparent. Yeah. How would you recommend projects begin to set targets around embodied carbon? Um, I think back to um, when we really started focusing on energy in buildings, there was, um, you know, the targets that were set were, were relatively arbitrary, but, you know, it was like, well, can we, you know, compared to a code standard building, can reduce things 20%, 40%, et cetera. Um, how, how, does a, how does a team or an owner go about um, setting these kinds of targets with, with embodied carbon? Well, I think it's, it's really interesting to sort of think about what's happened in energy modeling. And, and if we look back, you know, and when were targets first set? And so they were set in the 30 to 40 years ago range. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at the beginning, there's a lot that we don't even know. Um, so it, so um, as you mentioned, they, setting some arbitrary targets and working to improve um, is, is, is a good step. Um, when, when we look at embodied carbon reduction, there is really um, three main strategies. So one is to start with um, build less or build smart. Like, do you really need to build something at all? Can you reuse an existing building? Can you um, build a half as much square footage um, and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So those, those strategies, um, you, while one can calculate them and have a quantifiable metric, you, if you use half as much material, you're almost guaranteed to be using half as much in, um, or resulting in half as much embodied carbon. So it's that right, right off the bat, using things efficiently. Um, at the whole building scale, uh, there are um, growing um, efforts to standardize building scale baselines. The Carbon Leadership Forum developed an embodied carbon benchmarking study that tells you that the carbon footprint of a building ranges between 300 and 800 kilograms of CO2 per square meter, or, you know, like 30 to 80 kilograms of CO2 per square foot. So that's a fairly wide range. Uh, and, you know, that wide range of embodied carbon is very similar to the wide range of operating energy that we saw in early building um, performance. Because if you don't target that as a performance criteria, you know, you can leave things on the table really easily. Um, you don't, you don't, you know, so there's, uh, so there's a there's a wide range right now. So you know, a current at a building scale, a current owner or architect or engineer could say that the first goal is to understand what we have. Like, so do some modeling, do a life cycle assessment to understand what it is that we would typically build, and then start seeing where can we refine that. And we see we see design teams doing things like doing studies on their facade system and optimizing the insulation choices. We see engineers optimizing their concrete mixes and um, changing their specifications to performance-based specs, rather than saying, you must use this amount of cement, you say, you must have this strength at this time and this um, um, uh, freeze-thaw performance. So there's, there's um, the building scale, and then there is the specification and procurement scale where I talked about, um, you know, where you say, I'm, I want this concrete and I want it no more than this carbon footprint. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a similar question around policy, right? So um, it 
seems to me like a lot of policy folks are talking about the importance of understanding embodied carbon better, um, but I, I'm not aware of that many policies that are requiring measurement. And I wonder if you, uh, where you see that heading, you know, around the country, are there municipalities that are really leading in this in this space, and and how what are their first steps there um, in terms of what are they demanding of the of the market? Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing about embodied carbon is it intersects two sectors. One is the building sector, uh, and the other is the industrial sector. So if we and if we think about the building sector, we want to decarbonize buildings. And we don't want to work to make them so energy efficient that we, but we dump a whole bunch of material in, the, in there in such a way that the payback, the carbon payback from those materials is decades. So when we think about a building as a system, we need, we, well, we want to make sure and include embodied carbon. Uh, those upfront emissions happen today. We can't take them back once we build that. So for new construction in particular, um, if we're optimizing for performance on operating carbon, super important, you don't want to leave out the embodied. And the from the industrial perspective, when we look at, um, you know, when, when global tar climate targets need to um, uh, have um, really quick um, and significant reductions in industrial emissions, and the when you look at the, uh, the consumption of those um, industrial, you know, if we look at cement and steel, uh, glass and aluminum, the building and um, buildings and infrastructure is one of the largest or largest um, market pulls from those. So uh, when if we're looking at de decarbonizing industry, you say, okay, we want to incentivize the building sector to be that market pull to help help incentivize that. So that's just sort of a high level because there's sort of the building scale and then there's the material scale, which is more at the industrial sector. So at the building scale, we see policies like in Vancouver, which is requiring um, life cycle assessments for any of their zoning modifications um, and, and using that to set, um, um, develop broader understanding um, to set meaningful whole building scale um, targets. There are similar um, whole building scale targets um, happening in Europe. So typically in those types of policies, there's a period of time where there's a requirement to conduct a life cycle assessment on the building and then report that data. So we start to get um, um, a broader understanding of what's typically done in a region. Once you have that, then you have an ability of a setting some sort of way of incentivizing a lower carbon piece. Like you could have another floor if you had a you know, higher building or something like that, or you could have a cap where you said there's not a, a cap. Uh, International Living Futures Institute has in their zero carbon certification, they also have an embodied carbon um, component. So you can't be zero carbon certified unless you, you're below a cap of 500 kilograms per CO2 per square meter. And you also have to offset that. So they're, they, they've set a cap as part of that and a, um, an offsetting perspective. So those are some examples at whole building scale. Um, the uh, uh, at the material scale, um, probably the farthest along is um, buy clean policy. California um, several years ago instituted a buy clean policy in which all um, state purchasing of um, select materials, uh, steel, uh, flat glass, and mineral wool insulation were required to um, first submit an EPD. So each of those that you couldn't you couldn't build anything that didn't have its carbon nutrition label, 
and you then um, then then eventually instituting a cap, which you couldn't build with any material that was above the cap that California had set. Colorado just instituted something similar. Um, New York um, has uh, uh, LECLA, Low Embodied Carbon Act. Oh, I'm missing some a C, I think. Um, uh, that um, uh, had included um, bid incentives so that you could get, um, basically you could get a price premium if you delivered uh, low carbon concrete. Uh, in its final form, um, it has a, um, a working group to establish guidelines for procurement um, through the New York Office of General Services. So, um, but th those are all similar related um, about using purchasing power specifically to a material. It's really fascinating how the parallels between when we really started focusing on energy, you know, we had benchmarking, you have like Energy Star, you, you know, that's essentially what um, in some ways what EC3 is. Um, and, and seeing that um, uh, grow is really fascinating. It also seems a lot more complicated <laughs> because of the timescale issue <laughs> that you introduce with, with embodied carbon, especially when you're talking about offsetting with particular materials, you know, how long is a forest planted, what is going in its place, what, you know, all of that. All of that uh, makes it a lot more a lot more complicated. Uh, um, but we all it, um, we don't really have enough time uh, yeah. to get everything right. So so there there we. We need to start acting on um, like every single, like if we make directionally accurate choices, sometimes we might not, um, but we need to start making choices that prioritize the low carbon solutions. So, um, you know, that that's where um, I guess I just want to, I'll say like Title 24 in California, the energy is, I, I know California because that's where I was from. But when you start putting in energy efficiency mandates, Sometimes the, the requirements don't feel like they always make sense, or we can see that they don't have, they have a different unintended consequence, but we can see the arc over the time. What we've done is we've moved the, and we moved the entire building sector to understanding and valuing low energy solutions and we correct over time. Yeah, and uh, absolutely in general, we just need to be moving towards solutions that are commensurate with <laughs> the challenges that lay ahead. A absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, the, I, the fact that it's a complicated space to me is just sort of fascinating um, as opposed to mm -hmm. a barrier. So definitely we don't want to be throwing up our hands and, and saying, oh, this is too hard. Um, uh, and that, you know, tools like EC3 and stuff are, are absolutely part and parcel of of making that that process easier for for a broader number of of practitioners and and really advancing things, I think the policies that um, that focus on the uh, understood high embodied carbon um, materials like concrete, like steel, like some forms of insulation um, make a lot of sense for that uh, very reason. Right, you're you're targeting the the place where you. The numbers are highest currently, um, and not trying to figure out every component of a building necessarily. Um, uh, not a, you know embracing that um, seems seems like a smart smart move. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that it, 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 you want to make sure you're embracing it smartly. So you, you're get and and you're not trying to substitute one thing for another that doesn't do the thing that you need. So it it, it and and you know I think but you know professionals 
builders, architects, engineers understand performance-driven design. They understand what designing for an intended outcome and adding um, life cycle assessment and, and embodied carbon is an overlay to a process that is already happening. So it's, you know, we know cost, we know thermal performance, now we know material performance, and we have to make choices that balance those trade-offs all the time as practitioners. Yeah, that's great. Um, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate the time. Um, I'm curious, um, what's sort of next for you? What research are you doing currently or, or, or is it right around the horizon for you in this space? Well, there's, um, uh, you know, the work at the Carbon Leadership Forum really is um, trying to advance um, um, higher quality data and methods for life cycle assessment and higher quality um, policy. So we've got uh, a growing team that's um, bringing in a range of expertise onto those topics. So I'm, I'm really excited about how we're, you know, how, moving towards being able to do full scale, full building benchmarks at a, a, a greater resolution than the, the previous study that we had, um, doing more work in understanding the relationship between forests and wood products and how um, forest carbon accounting links to, um, to buildings. Uh, and then um, really just uh, um, developing um, and supporting the development of um, meaningful policy. For example, the um, federal government general services uh, administration um, working group came up with recommendations on both building and material scale embodied carbon, helping to support um, the questions that come up from there or places like Minnesota, um, also considering a bi-clean bill. You know, how, how does this work um, around embodied carbon and, and sort of innovation and leadership in that space? Uh, how does that manifest itself in uh, your academic uh, life and the, and the sort of way that um, education is, is maybe transforming uh, at the University of Washington and elsewhere? So as I talked earlier, you know, we, we have this time frame issue of, of 30 years. And so if we look at um, emerging professionals, people that are in their tw 20 years old, they're going to be 50 in in, you know, at 2050. And so their entire professional career is through the arc of responding to and adapting to uh, the climate crisis. And so then when we think about how are we educating the next generation of um, engineers, architects, builders, it's a really interesting challenge to think about how we re-envision education to prepare them for the, the type of change that we expect. And we overlay that a desire for a more just and equitable future. Um, the demands on our professional professions are increasing. You know, so it's just you know how do you how do you do all of the things that we've done before plus some. You know, we still want beautiful, delightful buildings and cities, and we want them to be safe and strong, and we want them to be zero carbon and healthy and support um, you know robust societies and just societies. And so it's been, um, it's because of that, that interesting challenge that I was really interested in um, taking on the role as department chair. Um, and how do we, how do we, how do we look at a, a strong architectural program and think about what do we, what is the next part of it? At the, at the College of Built Environments um, at the University of Washington, it's pretty interesting because we've got real estate, construction management, landscape architecture, urban design and planning and architecture all together. Uh, and, uh, you know, I see that a lot of the solutions um, 
to these grand challenges are going to require um, skills of interdisciplinary learning um, or, or, you know, and working. So we, we need, and so I'm, I'm really excited to be working across the disciplines there. Um, and, uh, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge. Um, we are being pushed by our students. Um, uh, the expectations of our students are different than the expectations that I had as a student. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's, um, you know, how do we, how do we create the space um, for their leadership is a, is a really interesting um, interesting challenge. So, um, and I think we think about all of us. So those of us over 20, right? How are we going to evolve over the next 30 years? What is the, what do we take as what we've known and how do we act in a way that really um, makes the change that we need? So uh, I think that for all of that, that means that we need to, we need to have um, optimism and compassion knowing that you know people have built up expertise in one area and we're asking them to do something different that's that's hard um yeah. and 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 uh you know nobody is um purposely um destroying the planet i mean i i i right we we make choices based on other criteria that have an end result of those things happening but that's not what people's desire is so i think we just need to focus on the desired future that we want and um, help uh, help all of us come together to get there. That's great. Um, it sounds to me like the university is very lucky to have you <laughs> in the chair position, um, focused on focused on these issues. Thank you. I'm really lucky to be there. Kate, thank you so much for your time today. Um, thank you for joining us on Radio BX. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>